This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, it's Greg. Let me start by saying that everyone here at Parcast would like to thank you for tuning in. Your loyalty and support means the world to us. Due to the unfortunate spread of COVID-19, we've decided to temporarily halt recording this week. Although it pains us to interrupt your listening experience, we feel that it's the right thing to do to ensure the safety of our hosts and staff. In the meantime, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce another podcast series that I think you'll enjoy called Dictators. If you haven't had a chance to hear Dictators yet, it chronicles the radicalism, deceit, and thirst for power of some of history's most infamous leaders. Ready to dive in? Here are two exceptional episodes on the Soviet Union's ruthless revolutionary, Joseph Stalin. You can hear more tales of history's most terrifying tyrants by following the podcast series Dictators. New episodes premiere every Tuesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. January 21st, 1924. Moscow. At the Grand Bolshoi Theater, the 11th All-Russia Congress of Soviets was well underway. All the most important government leaders were in attendance. Grigory Zinoviev, Lev Kamenev, Nikolai Bukharin, and the imposing man from Georgia, General Secretary Joseph Stalin. The conference was in the thick of discussion when they were interrupted by an urgent phone call. It was for Stalin. He took the receiver and spoke quietly. The other leaders didn't know what the call was about, but from the look on his face, it was serious. When he hung up, he turned to the theater of over 1,600 men and announced, Vladimir Lenin was dead. The crowd broke into tears and shock. Stalin was stoic, but his mind was racing. In the last few years, he'd made sure to position himself as Lenin's natural successor. He was already the leader of the Soviet Union in all but name, and soon it would be official. No one was going to stand in his way. And if they tried... (laughs) 
Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. For our first six episodes, we're exploring the lives of World War II's major dictators, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, and Adolf Hitler. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're diving into the rise of Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin. From his humble yet consequential beginnings in Georgia to his rise in the ranks of the Bolshevik Party. Finally, we'll explore his feud with Leon Trotsky, the rival who stood between him and total power. Next week, we'll explore Stalin's time in complete control. How his policies led to the deaths of millions how his paranoia resulted in the murder of any and all political enemies, and how victory in World War II established a decades-long Cold War with the United States. When looking at individuals who changed the course of history for either good or bad, Joseph Stalin is high on the list. A Georgian peasant and bandit who not only helped overthrow a 300-year-old dynasty, but turned a young nation into one of the most powerful countries in the world. Hitler will always have the notoriety of murdering six million-plus during the Holocaust. But under Stalin's regime, an estimated nine million were killed, either because of the famines or the various purges of political dissidents. How did a man whose mother wished him to be a priest become one of the most ruthless dictators in history? A man who once wanted to help the poor and saw Marxism as the path to equality. For that, we must journey to the Caucasus region of the Russian Empire, to the Georgian town of Gori. Gori was a small town known for its lawlessness. With an ethnic mix of Georgians, Armenians, Russians, and Jews, the town of roughly 7,000 was chaotic and violent. Brawls in the streets were a regular occurrence. If a young man wanted to survive into adulthood, he had to be able to hold his own in a fight. It is in this veritable tombstone of the Russian Empire where Yosef Vissarionovich Zhukashvili was born in 1878. Before he was known to history as Stalin, he was called Soso by friends and comrades. The only surviving son of his family, Soso was torn between two destinies. His alcoholic father, Vissarion, wanted him to follow in his footsteps and become a cobbler. His mother, Ekaterina, wanted him to get an education and become more than just a laborer. Ekaterina won out. Soso was an exceptionally gifted student, always ranking in the top ten in his class. But he brought the rough-and-tumble streets of Gori into the classroom. He quickly developed a habit of challenging authority, a challenge he would continue until he himself was the authority. 
Soso wasn't just naturally intelligent, he worked for it. He felt the need to prove himself better than the rest. Besides carrying the tarnished name of his drunken father, Soso's early life was riddled with health problems. He suffered from smallpox that left his face scarred forever. When he was around 11, he was struck by a carriage that gave him a limp he carried for the rest of his life. And on top of all of that, one of his arms was shorter than the other. Soso was determined to be more than just a walking defect. He was going to be the one who dictated how others saw him. As a child, Soso witnessed the might of imperial authority through the hangings of local bandits. When he was about 13, he and his friends were told by their Russian Orthodox teachers that the three men at the gallows had stolen a cow and murdered a police officer while trying to escape. But looking up at the dirty men in chains and nooses, waiting for the trap door to drop, Soso didn't see hardened criminals. Instead, he saw peasants trying to survive an oppressive landlord. He and his family could be forced into the same position any day. In Soso's eyes, the hanging was merely a way for Imperial Russia to flex its might over poverty-stricken Georgia. This defining moment did three things. It instilled in him a hatred for Tsarist Russia. It desensitized him from death. And it made poverty his cause to champion. Soso's mother had always wanted him to become a priest. This seemed like a good avenue to help the poor. So at the age of 16, he left for seminary school in the city of Tiflis, 50 miles to the southeast. At the seminary, his outlook on life changed forever, but not in the way he expected. After joining a secret club that studied banned books, Soso discovered the works of Chernyshevsky, Dostoevsky, Victor Hugo, and Karl Marx. Reading Das Kapital opened Soso's eyes to socialism. This was what he was looking for all along a way for the poor to triumph over the oppressive Russian government. As he embraced his new radical beliefs, Soso became even more disobedient toward the school's priests. This put him directly in the crosshairs of Father Abashids. The priest was determined to confiscate any and all banned material from the students. To that end, he raided Soso's rooms and investigated his whereabouts. Soso was forced to look over his shoulder constantly, a fear he would carry with him into adulthood. When he was forced to leave seminary school in April 1899 due to falling grades, not to mention Father Abashid's crusade against him, Soso saw it as a blessing. Being a priest wasn't his destiny. Marxism was. As a young man, his view on Marxism was as such. The revolutionary proletariat is destined by history to liberate mankind and bring the world happiness. Marxism is the masses, whose liberation is the catalyst for freedom of the individual. Stalin understood that in order to achieve revolution, blood was going to be spilled. And having grown up on the dangerous streets of Gori, he was the man for the job. Soso was a natural leader. In late 1899, the 20-year-old organized his first labor strike in Tiflis. Not only was it his first, 
but it was one of Georgia's first major strikes in history. After that, Soso was hooked. He soon joined the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, or RSDLP. Thanks to his street fighter childhood, Soso advocated for a more militant approach to demonstrating. This propensity for violence quickly made him a target for Russia's secret police, the Okhrana. The Okhrana would constantly be a thorn in Stalin's side throughout his revolutionary days. Though they managed to arrest him several times, he had a tendency to escape. Once he was free, it was back to demonstrating. The pattern continued all the way until 1903, when a schism suddenly tore through the RSDLP. On one side were the Mensheviks, led by Julius Martov. On the other were the Bolsheviks, led by Vladimir Lenin. The dispute was technically about party membership. The Mensheviks preferred a larger, more loosely organized base of supporters, while the Bolsheviks believed only dedicated, full-time activists could claim party membership. But the real issue was deeper than that. Lenin described it as a fight between soft and hard, gradual progressive change and radical revolution. You can guess which side the young Stalin fell on. At the time, Lenin was one of the leading Marxist revolutionaries in Europe. Soso didn't just read Lenin's radical works, he idolized him. And once he joined the Bolsheviks, he was ready to prove his worth. In January 1905, a mass protest against Tsar Nicholas II sparked a violent revolution across Russia. Soso knew it was his time to shine. He organized Bolshevik battle squads in Georgia, clashing with police throughout the region. To finance his operations, he engaged in protection rackets for wealthy oil barons. Soso embraced his role as both gangster and revolutionary. As the Tsar orchestrated pogroms against the Jews, Armenians, and Tartars, Soso responded with coordinated attacks against the imperialists. Soso's bloodletting drew the ire of the more moderate Mensheviks that dominated Georgia, but it gave him clout amongst the Bolsheviks. That clout eventually led to him being chosen as a delegate to the RSDLP conference in Finland in December 1905. Because these gatherings were illegal in Russia, the party was forced to meet abroad and generally in secret. At 27 years old, Soso was going to leave Russia for the first time in his life. More importantly, though, he was finally going to meet his idol, Vladimir Lenin. Soso's reaction upon seeing Lenin was one of complete shock. As he put it, Lenin was the most ordinary man, below average height, in no way different from ordinary mortals. Yet despite Lenin's ordinary features, his personality and mind were enigmatic. And that was what fascinated his young devotee. However, Soso wasn't above disagreeing with his hero. For example, he vehemently disagreed with Lenin regarding the newly created state Duma. The Duma was Tsar Nicholas's concession towards the revolution, a legislative body that was supposed to represent the people. Lenin wanted the Bolsheviks to participate. Soso, however, didn't think the Duma went far enough. He thought the exercise was pointless. He didn't trust Nicholas to keep his word and give the legislature any real power. 
Soso wasn't wrong. In fact, the conference in Finland was cut short by reports of imperial violence back in Russia. It would be another four months before Soso and Lenin met again. And in that time, Soso added a new element to his fundraising strategy, bank robbing. He converted his battle squads into a gang of thieves. This got Lenin's attention. It's believed that during their second meeting in April 1906, Lenin gave Soso his blessing to continue with the bank robberies. As historian Simon Seberg Montefiore notes, this was the first time that Lenin observed Stalin's value as a ruthless underground operator. It isn't hard to imagine a sense of pride in getting such an order from his political hero. Returning to Georgia, Soso amped up his bank robberies. Within a few short months, he added piracy on the Black Sea to his roster of activities. As he understood it, his role was to help fund the Marxist revolution by whatever means necessary. Between the violence that came with the 1905 revolution and dangerous robberies that followed, Soso's outlook on human life and death seems to have darkened. When he heard about the death of one of his men, he allegedly said, What can we do? One can't pick a rose without pricking oneself on a thorn. Leaves fall from the tree in autumn, but fresh ones grow in the spring. When he'd converted to Marxism, he knew the proletarian revolution was going to be bloody. As someone who'd grown up surrounded by violence, he had no problem being the man to dole it out. That was just the way it had to be. In May 1907, Soso attended the 5th RSDLP Congress in London. At one point during the conference, he saw a man walking to the podium whom he'd never seen before. He had a wild poof of hair, and he walked with an arrogance that made Soso immediately hate him. He turned to a comrade and asked who the man was. It was Lev Bronstein, better known as Leon Trotsky. And in no time at all, he would become Soso's sworn enemy. Coming up, Soso, Lenin, and Trotsky put an end to a 300-year-old dynasty. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In May 1907, 28-year-old Yosef Jukashvili known to his friends as Soso, was in London for the 5th Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party. For nearly a decade, he had dedicated his life to the Russian Marxist cause of taking down the ruling class. His modus operandi was terrorism, bank robbery, and extortion. But the star of the 5th Congress wasn't Soso. Far from it. That honor belonged to another, Leon Trotsky. Comrade Trotsky was, at the time, as well-known as Lenin and Martov. Undoubtedly the most gifted writer of the cause, the Menshevik-siding Trotsky relished his celebrity. During the 1905 revolution, 
Trotsky made a name for himself by championing an aspect of Marxism that would one day bear his name, permanent revolution. He didn't just want Marxism in Russia, he wanted it around the globe. Russia was only the first domino. For the rest of his life, Trotsky would advocate for constant revolution, making enemies among his fellow revolutionaries in the process. Stalin hated him the moment he saw him. The feeling wasn't quite reciprocated. Trotsky claims he doesn't remember meeting Stalin at the conference at all. This may be because even though Soso attended the Congress, he didn't speak at it. His head was back in Georgia planning more robberies. From 1908 to 1911, Soso continued to play the role of Lenin's gangster, robbing and extorting oil tycoons around Georgia. At one point, he robbed the Tiflis Bank, which yielded him the equivalent of $4 million today, and the ire of the more moderate Mensheviks, who vehemently opposed his violent tactics. Despite not being as well-known as Lenin, Martov, or Trotsky, Soso was making a name for himself among the Bolsheviks. His banditry and his ability to escape police custody gave him a romantic allure. More importantly, it proved that he was more than just a faceless party member. His work was rewarded in September 1911 when he was invited to join the Central Committee, the Executive Council of the RSDLP. His opportunities grew at the beginning of 1912 when the Bolsheviks gained control of the entire party. One of the first things Lenin did was turn the popular periodical Pravda into a mouthpiece for the Bolshevik movement. Soso was given the job of editor. He quickly took to writing articles and seemed to enjoy the new role he played for the movement. But historian Simon Sebag Montefiore notes that in much of his writing, Soso reveals his cynical view of diplomacy and his belief in doublespeak, long before Orwell coined the term. For example, Soso wrote, When bourgeois diplomats prepare for war, they shout loudly about peace. A diplomat's words must contradict his deeds. Otherwise, what sort of diplomat is he? Fine words are a mask to conceal shady deeds. A sincere diplomat is like dry water or wooded iron. Of course, not everyone was enthralled with his writings. Trotsky famously called them the language of Tiflis seminary homiletics. But the only audience member he really cared about appeasing was, of course, Lenin. Around this time, Lenin was struggling to develop the Bolshevik view on nationalities. In a country as diverse as Russia, he feared that ethnic divides could undermine class warfare. Knowing that Soso came from a diverse region, Lenin asked if he would be willing to write a treatise on the subject. Soso instantly said yes. A few months later, he published one of his most important works, Marxism and the National Question. In Soso's view, the key word in defining a nation is territory. Ethnic Russians born and raised in America or Canada weren't Russian by nationality, but American or Canadian. They would have much more in common with their neighbors there than with, say, someone living in Moscow. What this means in practice, it doesn't matter if you're Georgian, Armenian, or Jewish. If you live in Russia, you're a Russian first and foremost. 
While Marxism and the national question would prove to be a seminal work in Marxist theory, it is most remembered for being the first major publication in which Soso used his nom de plume, Stalin. Taken from the Russian word for man of steel, the positive reaction to the pamphlet convinced Soso to take Stalin as his permanent surname. Unfortunately, the success would be short-lived. On February 23, 1913, Stalin attended a Bolshevik masquerade party, an event that he had no desire to attend. He was only convinced to go by a friend and fellow Central Committee member, Roman Malinovsky. At around midnight, the party was suddenly crashed by the Okhrana, the Russian secret police. They were looking for Stalin. He attempted to escape wearing women's clothing, but he didn't get very far. Now in custody, Stalin was sentenced to four years of exile in an area of Siberia known as Turogansk. The location was chosen specifically because it was near the Arctic Circle. The rough, tundra-like terrain would make it impossible for even Stalin to escape. The whole masquerade party had been a setup. Roman Malinovsky was actually a double agent for the Okhrana. For three years, he not only spied on his comrades, but climbed the ranks with the Bolsheviks while doing it. He was even elected to the State Duma. According to historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, the Malinovsky case played its role in making Stalin and his comrades obsessively paranoid. Like Banquo's ghost, he haunted Soviet history. Stalin would never forget that someone he trusted, a brother in the fight against the bourgeoisie, was a traitor. While the other leaders of the revolution continued to work, both at home and abroad, Stalin survived in Siberia. Ironically, these years would provide him with some of his happiest memories. Later in life, he would tell stories of his time as a rugged hunter, like a lone gunman in the West or a ronin in the East. In time, almost all of the major revolutionaries were exiled during the outbreak of World War I. Stalin was in the North, Lenin was in Switzerland, and Trotsky bounced around Europe. World War I was wildly unpopular with the Russian people. For three years, they suffered heavily against the Germans. Anti-war fervor was growing, and in 1917, the powder keg was lit. On March 2nd, a telegram arrived declaring that all exiles were to be freed. A few hours later, Stalin found out why. After mass protests in Petrograd, Tsar Nicholas II had abdicated the throne. The Romanov dynasty was over. The revolution was on. 1917 was arguably the most chaotic year in Russian history. From February to October, confusion reigned about the future of the country's leadership. A provisional government was established, but it was immediately doomed because of the various political factions vying for power. The Bolsheviks always had an uphill battle because they were in the minority. They not only had to contend with the Mensheviks, but also various other liberal, conservative, and less radical socialist groups that made up Russian politics. But that didn't stop them from trying. Throughout the spring and summer of 1917, Lenin traveled back and forth from Russia and abroad and urged the Bolsheviks to overthrow the provisional government. 
Stalin, meanwhile, retook control of the periodical Pravda and went back to writing articles and pamphlets. And with Lenin in and out of the country, for a brief period, Stalin was the de facto leader of the Bolsheviks. It was his first real chance for public speaking, and it proved that he was no public speaker. Unlike Mussolini or Hitler, Stalin was never able to inspire the masses in a large crowd. The spotlight instead made its way to Trotsky. For eight months, these three leaders and the rest of the Bolsheviks fought, both diplomatically and violently, for control of Russia. The question was no longer if there'd be an armed rebellion. The question was when. At the end of August, the Bolsheviks got help in the form of a failed military coup. A former imperial general tried to overthrow the provisional government. It didn't work, and in fact, it sowed distrust among the people. Many of them flocked to the Bolsheviks. Fortune swung in Lenin's favor, and he wasn't going to waste it. In October, he snuck back into Petrograd and spent days trying to convince the Central Committee to approve an armed insurrection of their own. He succeeded by a vote of 10 to 2. Amidst the debate on how to proceed, on October 24th, the provisional government raided Stalin's press offices, smashing most of his equipment. Upon hearing the news, the Central Committee quickly began assigning tasks for the revolution. Meanwhile, Stalin was at his print shop restarting the presses. The rest of the committee organized without him. Trotsky would use his absence to diminish his role in the October Revolution, claiming that Stalin missed it. True, he wasn't there with the soldiers on October 25th, overtaking the bank, the telephone exchange, the post office, or the bridges. But he was with Lenin, Trotsky, and the others as the new government was being established. Thanks to his works on nationalism, Lenin appointed Stalin as People's Commissar of Nationalities. On October 26th, the Winter Palace, the former residence of the Romanov dynasty and the seat of the provisional government, was stormed by the Bolshevik Red Guard. That night, Lenin arrived at the newly established Congress of Soviets to a hero's applause. He informed them all that the time had come to construct the socialist order. Later, the members of the new Soviet government were read aloud, including Joseph Stalin. At the time, his name was fairly obscure to the public. In less than a decade, however, the world would become all too familiar with the name of Joseph Stalin. Coming up, the battle between Stalin and Trotsky comes to a head. Now back to the story. In October 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrew the provisional government. 38-year-old Joseph Stalin, while not widely known among the public, played a crucial role in the revolution. And when the time came to create the new government, he was appointed People's Commissar of Nationalities. In those first few months of the new Soviet Republic, Stalin worked side by side with Lenin and Trotsky. The three formed a troika, the Russian version of the triumvirate. As Stalin's chief assistant, Stanislaw Pizkovsky, noted, Lenin could not get along without Stalin for even a single day. Stalin and Trotsky, however, never got along. Stalin had disliked Trotsky from the moment he saw him, 
and Trotsky thought little of Stalin at all. Now forced to work together, the stage was set for a war between the intellectual Trotsky and the roguish Stalin. The first battle happened during the Russian Civil War. After the Bolsheviks took over Russia, various non-socialist groups banded together to engage in a counter-revolution. As war commissar, Trotsky's job was to put an end to this. But in spring of 1918, Lenin ordered Stalin to lead a defense force to the city of Tsaritsyn, a key source for Bolshevik agriculture. Stalin was successful, and with his ego inflated, he became more open with his opinions on how Trotsky was running the Red Army. In particular, he hated the fact that Trotsky employed former Tsarist generals for their military expertise. Stalin was hostile toward the Tsarist leftovers. In one case, he let several of them die on a sinking barge in the Volga River. Trotsky was outraged. He demanded that Lenin recall Stalin as punishment. So he did. Stalin returned to Moscow, vowing to never forget what Trotsky had done. And although it pained him knowing that Lenin had sided with his enemy, there was one bright side. Lenin clearly appreciated his ruthlessness. He only wished it wasn't used towards people he considered allies. Even after that incident, Stalin rarely saw victory in battle, despite believing himself a military man. One of his most egregious mistakes occurred in August 1920. As the Soviets tried to spread socialism into neighboring countries, they met heavy resistance in Poland. Stalin was ordered to move his troops and help with the siege of Warsaw. However, he ignored the order, and Warsaw remained in Polish hands. Both Trotsky and Lenin blamed Stalin for the defeat. Stalin knew he had to turn things around. 1921 would be his year, and it happened quicker than he thought. In February and March of 1921, Stalin led a successful invasion of his home country, Georgia. The Red Army squashed the resistance in a short and decisive campaign, annexing the region into the Soviet Republic. This moment gave Stalin quite the ego boost as he went into the 10th Party Congress later that month. Already high on victory, he knew that his actions at the Congress could bring him back in Lenin's good graces. The first item on the agenda, Lenin's new economic policy. The Russian Civil War had caused a major economic crisis in the Soviet Republic. To save the economy, Lenin introduced his controversial new economy policy. To put it briefly, the NEP partially reintroduced capitalism by allowing free trade as a way to jumpstart the economy. Lenin argued that it was only a temporary measure. Hardline Bolsheviks decried the proposal anyway, and Trotsky was one of its most vocal critics. While Stalin also disagreed with the policy, supporting it would help reestablish his favorability. So, Stalin sided with Lenin. Stalin's support for issues like this had a much more lasting impact than he anticipated. When it was time to re-up Central Committee membership, many of Trotsky's allies were denied re-election. They were instead replaced by Stalin's camp. Ironically, for a man who didn't want party factions, Lenin had inadvertently created two, the Stalinisty and the Trotskysty. 
And with his side gaining clout, Stalin positioned himself as the next in line for power. Beginning in 1922, Lenin could see the writing on the wall that he wasn't long for this world. His health was declining, and he didn't help himself with the amount of work he took on. Many assumed that his successor would be Trotsky. But in the years since the revolution, Stalin had learned how to play politics. Historian Stephen Kotkin notes that Stalin had a deft political touch. He recalled names and episodes of people's biographies, impressing them with his familiarity, concern, and attentiveness no matter where they stood in the hierarchy. He was a people person, a ward boss-style politician. Much has been written about the notion that Lenin never wanted Stalin to take over, but the sequence of events contradicts that idea. Beginning with the fact that in April 1922, Lenin spearheaded the election of Stalin as general secretary of the Communist Party. Now the head of the party, Stalin was able to make appointments and fill positions with his supporters. This ultimately led to pressure within the government to swing issues in Stalin's favor. Just seven weeks after his general secretary appointment, Lenin suffered a massive stroke. Stalin made it a point to visit the ailing Lenin more than anyone else did. Ironically, Stalin's new position and Lenin's illness saw the deterioration of their once strong relationship. With the power balance in flux, the two clashed over matters of the state, particularly over what to do with the Caucasus region. Lenin wanted Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan to remain as semi-independent entities, while Stalin wanted them to answer to Moscow. Stalin ultimately won. On December 30, 1922, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was created. Officially, all the Soviet states would have an equal say in the new centralized government. In reality, because all decisions in Russia were now made by the Politburo of the Communist Party, Stalin, as general secretary, had all the power. On January 21, 1924, Vladimir Lenin fell into a coma and died. Trotsky, Kamenev, and Zinoviev, the three who had been with Lenin the longest, all believed that they were his rightful heirs. Despite Stalin being head of the party, none of them believed he had the ability to do it. Stalin begged to differ. More than the others, he was well-liked within the party, and he had made sure to appoint his allies into key positions. The leadership struggle was still in full swing at the 13th Party Congress in May 1924. At a secret meeting during the convention, the party leaders were confronted with a damning letter from their departed leader. Though the authenticity of Lenin's testament, as it came to be known, was never verified, it dealt a serious blow to Stalin. According to Lenin's letter, Comrade Stalin, having become general secretary, has concentrated boundless power in his hands, and I am not sure that he will always be able to use that power with sufficient caution. And Stalin is too rude, and this defect, although quite tolerable in our midst and in relations among us communists, becomes intolerable in a general secretary. That is why I suggest removing Stalin. Stalin couldn't let this be his lasting legacy, not with power so close at hand. 
So, in a dramatic gesture of repentance, he offered his resignation as general secretary. He also promised to take Lenin's criticisms to heart and assured everyone that he wouldn't abuse his power. The crocodile tears worked. Stalin was promptly re-elected as general secretary. All that stood in his way now was Leon Trotsky. That was an easy problem to rectify. In November 1927, Stalin flexed his power and expelled Trotsky from the Communist Party, along with his two key allies, Kamenev and Zinoviev. The following month at the 15th Party Congress, Stalin said, The old obsolete falls off, the new grows and develops. If now some leaders fall off the cart of revolution, not wanting to sit firmly in the cart, then in that there's nothing surprising to those who fall off from the cart, then that way is their road. Stalin's speech was met with thunderous applause. Over 1,600 delegates gave him a standing ovation, and it signaled the official end of Trotsky's opposition faction. Trotsky himself never capitulated. He continued to oppose Stalin even as he faced exile, first in Kazakhstan, then in Turkey, and finally in Mexico. He spent the rest of his life denouncing the man he called the gravedigger of the revolution. But Stalin only laughed. The impoverished, sickly man from Georgia was now the leader of the largest country in the world. And to keep a firm grip on his power, millions would have to die. Thanks for listening to Dictators. We'll be back next Tuesday to explore Stalin's reign of terror as he shapes the Soviet Union into a global superpower. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>